Lamentations chapter 2. Hear God's word. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under the cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kings and its ruler, the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He's burned like he has burned like the flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand sent, set against the foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. He has laid its ruins laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughters of Judah mourning and lamentation. He's laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurred king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampant, rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have shrunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on to the ground because of the destruction of the daughters of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this a city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her 
Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemies rejoice over you and exalted the, right, the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord. A wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should the women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should the priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen on the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtered without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I have held and raised, my enemies destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Anybody feel happy? If you have been a Christian for any length of time, any length of time, you may have experienced what I might call the, the dark side of God's will. That's not, a, that's not a Star Wars illusion in any way, but there's uh, what feels like a, a dark side of God's will. It's kind of a metaphor that I'm trying to use to describe certain seasons of life that are extremely difficult. difficult. Moments where you almost feel like God has abandoned you. You know, those moments where you feel like at one time you're in the orbit of God's perfect and beautiful, bright, shiny orbit around God, and everything is hunky-dory, things couldn't be better, but for a moment, all of a sudden you feel that you are in a place where that warm glow of His promise-keeping grace is ellipsed. It's ellipsed by the difficulty, confusion, pain, and silence of life. Have you ever experienced it? That's moments where you're going, God, where are you? Being on the dark side of God's will doesn't necessarily change the certainty of the, this providential orbit that you're going around, it doesn't necessarily negate the real presence of the promise-filled sun, right? Yet this eclipse kind of creates within us an, an environment that feels dark, feels cold, it feels lonely. But yet you know, one day the sun will shine again but it seems like a long way off when you're on the dark side of God's will. And for me, understanding this concept is helpful because I need to figure out 
How does God work? The holiness of God and the sinfulness of Paul or this, the sinfulness of this world. And it helps me to know that God is working out a plan that is bigger than anything I can ever see or anything that I can ever know. I, I have to somehow anchor my heart into the very sovereignty of God when life all around me seems painful, confusing, or when life seems unfair. I need to throw back that anchor and trust that it is going to catch in the sovereign plans of God and that somehow all things work together for the good of those who love Him. But there's another aspect of the dark side of God's will. In the same way that there's the, the bigness of God's plan, that, that it should inform how we see the circumstances of our lives, so too the holiness of God should inform how I view the problem of sin in me and the world. When life is confusing and, and you're really wondering what's going on, it is then that your view of God's plan really matters. And when you see judgment falling on society or someone near you or your own self, it is then when your view of God really matters. When, or when you look back at history and you see the judgment of God, your view of God really helps interpret what is going on. So what is your view of God in relationship to the his holiness or to his sovereignty how big really is your god in your mind really how big is god in your mind how different is god from you is he kind of the santa claus kind of guy that you can chum around sock him in the shoulder and just keep on moving on down life or is god holy and other not like you at all and then how does this affect your perspective of sin do you take sin seriously in your life and how does lament then help you with that see lament as we've been talking lament is this heartfelt cry as we pour ourselves out to God in prayer. It, it serves for the Christian as a, an interpreter of our lives' pains and, and our sorrows. It, it takes the thing that is happening and it interprets what lies underneath and whatever is happening beyond what just has happened in your life. And Christian lament is probably one of the most theologically rich things that we can do. For us, many of the us think that, man, praise and worship, singing to God is probably one of the, the most theologically rich things that we can do. Or maybe you think that living on mission is one of the most theologically rich things that you can do. But the reality is, lament is probably one of the most theologically rich things that you can do. Why? Because in those moments, you discover what you really believe about God. 
and what you really believe about yourself and what you really believe about the world. All kinds of things surface in the moment that you are lamenting. It can be compared negatively to the, the sediment that's found in a beaker. Take, kind of go back in the Wayback Machine for some of you. Remember high school, maybe college, you, you got the beaker, and there's a substance that kind of lies in the bottom of that beaker, right? And, and everything above it is almost clean, white, and pure. You can see through it with no problem whatsoever. But when the beaker gets bumped, what happens? All the sediment does what? It rises and it mixes. And what was in the bottom becomes very evident and clear. Things come out of our mouths when we get bumped in lament. Things that we really believe suddenly give rise and mix with the rest of our life. And part of what comes to light in the moment where we are pressed in is your view of God. And that's the beauty and the trauma of suffering. Whether it is innocent or well-deserved, it tests, it tests what we really believe to be true about God. Lament, especially lamentations, is helpful to tune up it helps us tune our heart to God's glory. It reminds us that there is a bigger symphony that is being played out in this universe. We might have an instrument, and we might be able to make some music while we are living in this world, but it is only God ultimately that is orchestrating and playing this whole symphony. So how does this relate to lament? Two ways. It gives us the sheet music to play when we are invited into God's tune. This, the symphony is God's tune. He's the one who has written out the scores. And we have a part. So lament helps us. It gives us the sheet music that we are to play when we're invited into God's tune. In other words, it connects us back to the bigger story of God's glory when we're hurting and when we're confused when we're struggling, when we're lonely, when we're dealing with, with depression and emotions that we don't know what to do with, it invites us back into the story, reminding us that ultimately this is God's symphony. He wrote it. But it also, in reading lament and reflecting on lament, we are able to have God tune our hearts. Tune our hearts to his glory and to also be warmed. In other words, laments remind us that God is merciful and kind and he is gracious to us. And our hearts are tuned to that, but we are also tuned to the fact that he is also holy and to be feared. So we're tuned to these two opposing, seemingly opposing things the gracious, kind, merciful side of God and the holy aspect, his otherness, where he is to be feared. So there's another side to grace, right? Like I said last week, grace is only amazing because why? Judgment is real. 
That's why grace, we can sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. And we quickly sing over that. But grace is only amazing because God's judgment is real. He has given us. He has saved us. And that's what makes us so thankful for him. And this statement about the holiness of God and the judgment of God should make us both rejoice and tremble. Lament tunes the heart to hear the major and the minor keys of God's glory. It invites us to consider what kind of God are we really dealing with here? Is he kind of a, a make-up, make-believe, I'm going to kind of make him like I want in my own image kind of God? Or is he another kind, different from me? And Lamentations chapter 2 in particular sings a terrifying song about God's glory in judgment. In judgment. So my aim for you in, in Lamentations chapter 2 is for you to hear this tune, but to do it in a way that is balanced. You need to hear up front that there is no, and you've heard it, there is no happy resolve in this chapter. None. Did, did any of you walk away going, oh, yeah, whoo, pulled out of that tailspin. That, that really feels good right now. No, it, uh, from the first verse to the last verse, verse 1 to verse 22, it has the same thing. Judgment, right? The judgment. Know that God will bring restoration to his people, but this is not what, this, what it's about here in this chapter. It's only about judgment. So I hope to provide for you a balanced look at, at the picture of God in judgment and for, to, for you to see it in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So I want, to, I want us to really, as a congregation, to grapple with the horror of God's wrath. And I want you to see the hope offered through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So we've got, we've got a few movements going on in this section. And the first one is that we are going to see the very wrath of God. The first ten verses are, are poetically expressing what judgment, the judgment of God looked like in Jerusalem. And in case you weren't with us last week, the background to this Hebrew poem is the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem that happened in 586 B.C., in the hands of the Babylonian army. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, had warned his people time and time and time and time and time again, creatively, through different venues, different people, different ways, he has warned them that judgment is coming. Judge, if you keep going on down this track, judgment is coming. But the people failed to listen. Their hearts were hard. And as a result... They faced the deserved judgment of God. And some of you are going, that just doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. As a parent, I go, oh yeah, that makes sense. 
your child continues to do the same thing over and over and over again, ultimately in a way that would lead to their destruction, finally there's a point where they are facing judgment, right? Discipline, the loving discipline of God or the loving discipline of dad or of mom. There's a point where you just say, enough is enough. So the first word in verse uh, 2 verse 1 is the same as 1 verse 1. The word is how. How? And it's both a question and a cry and pain, and it's a statement of struggle. What's more, it serves as a Hebrew title for the book of Lamentations. This shocking question it will make more sense as we kind of walk through this text. But chapter 2 is an amplification of chapter 1. You should also note, if you're observant, that there's 22 verses in this chapter as there were in the previous chapter. And you're going, so what? Lamentations, follow, chapter 2, follows the exact same pattern as Lamentations 1, with the first word of every verse starting with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. And this is to communicate that God's judgment is from A to Z. It is complete and it is total. It will run its full course because that is what is needed. There's no escaping. There's no halfway when it comes to God's judgment. It is going to happen from A to Z. And verse 1 serves as, as kind of the theme for the in, entire chapter. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. So take note what we see here, because it is a frank framework for what is to come. First, what do we see? The Lord is angry. He's upset. 22 verses of saying, this isn't good. And you're going to feel it. And it's not comfortable, a comfortable thought or image, but it is real. The God of the universe can be justifiably and righteously angry. For some of you, that does not fit in your paradigm, your understanding of God. He is a warm, fuzzy marshmallow. Right? He's cuddly. He's soft. I could just crawl up into his arms. But this is saying, no, God can be justifiably and righteously angry. And that's his character. We also see that even though God, the people of God, are extremely precious to him, right? They're even called a daughter. He has set her under a cloud. And what is this cloud? It's a cloud of judgment. We also see that the glory of the, of the people of God has fallen. The blessing of God has, has been removed from them. And the light of the nations has been extinguished. They used to be a bright, shiny place of hope. The glory of God was seen in the people of, of Israel. But now it has been ex extinguished. And the blessed people are now a disciplined people. We also see that the temple and the city seem to have been forgotten by God. If you read Ezekiel uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10, 
you can see how the glory of God even left the temple. It left the temple. The beauty of God's presence was gone. And that is just verse 1. The rest of the chapter just paints a relentless and a troubling picture of God's wrath against the nation in their waywardness. Notice how verses 2 and 3 describe God. Take note, special note of the verbs. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitations of, of Jacob. In his wrath, he had broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He had brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdoms and its ruler. He cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the, the enemy. He has burned down like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. This judgment is severe. And Jeremiah wants to see us to see it from different angles and in full technicolor, right? As if you didn't get it, let me, let me paint it out for you. Let me give you a, a bunch of different descriptions of the judgment of God. He wants us to see two things. He wants us to see the extent of the destruction and how bad it really is. He wants us to see that vividly. He, secondly, Jeremiah wants to, us to clearly know that God is the one that is behind it. In my Bible, I have circled the words, the Lord and He. How many times it is describing what the Lord has done, what He has done, and how He has done it is absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying. Babylon might have been the means by which God did it, but God was ultimately the one orchestrating judgment. It was by God's hand. And I know for some of you that raises all kinds of theological questions about God and the work of God and who He is. Is He loving and all that kind of stuff? And it's kind of stirring up maybe a little bit of anxiety and all your questions about Christianity is coming to a head. I knew it. God really is mean. He's vindictive. But what I want you to do is somehow, maybe in your mind, set aside all those questions just for a moment. I just want you to see what Jeremiah wants you to see here. I want you to look with Jeremiah's eyes into this text. And behind the Babylonian army and the judgment of Judah, what does he see? He sees a very holy God. And we're going to come back to verses 4 and 5 in a moment, but let's see what other descriptions got, uh, we have of God's disciplining work. In verses 6 and 7, you can look there, uh, the judgment of God even extends to the worship of God's people. Even the temple and all the worship that, that's connected to it is absolutely obliterated. It's destroyed. Here's, real quick, here's what we find. Laid in ruins is his meeting place. Made Zion forget 
festival and Sabbath, spurned king and priest, scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, and raised a clamor in the house of the Lord on the day of festival. This last statement means that all the, the temple festivities, all the festivals that were uh, mandated have been replaced with enemies now who are celebrating. That's an ouch. It's painful. But what's more, on top of this, we see another aspect of God's discipline. We see that the entire city was destroyed. In verse 8, we read that the walls and the ramparts of the city have been laid to waste. They're in ruins. In verse 9, the gates have even been knocked over. And the gates is what kept people out. And those gates, safety and security, have been knocked down. On top of that, there's no way to keep the enemies out. There's no defensive ability whatsoever for the city. Jerusalem is just absolutely exposed. But it's not just about the ruin of the city. Their entire culture was destroyed as well. According to verses 9 and 10, their leaders have been taken captive. They have no access to the law. The prophets have no word from the Lord anymore. And the elders of the city are silent. Not only are they silent of giving advice and nurture and care and shepherding, they are mourning. They're mourning. The young women are weeping. Everything, everything is ruined. Everywhere you look, there is absolute devastation. It's a picture of Aleppo. If you've watched the news and you've looked at the devastation, you've seen any news clips, I don't care where you stand politically, what you think about ISIS, all that kind of stuff, if your heart does not see the devastation of that city, you are callous. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. Total devastation. So let's go back to Verses 4 and 5. Because there's a concerning word there. He says that God has become like an enemy. The wrath of God has turned against Judah and the results have been terrible. We've seen some of that. Death, destruction, and ruin is everywhere. And in order to bring the people back to himself, God will have to deliver, uh, discipline them severely. So much so that it will look like God is the enemy. It looks like God is the enemy. And if you have been a parent, you know in the midst of discipline, often your kids will look at you like, are you serious? You who have loved me and nurtured me and clothed me and fed me, you have done this? And there's all kinds of emotions. It looks like the parents are the enemy, when in reality, it is loving kindness. It's God's mercy and His grace that is being poured out in the moment. And I want to reassure you that God is not surely their enemy in the end. This book, in fact, ends with an appeal for God's restoration, which does happen in the future. But the pain in the moment makes it feel, feel, that's an important word, 
feel like God is the enemy. The people of God are under the judgment of God. And His wrath against their sin is being poured out in full measure. Full measure. And despite the fact that they are His chosen people, the apple of His eye, despite His covenantal love for them, and despite His continual warning after warning after warning, the nation has reached the point where the divine scales have finally tipped. God leveled his own temple. It seems strange, doesn't it? God leveled his own temple. God scattered his own people. God ruined his own city. Why? Because as important as Israel is to God, as important as worship is to him, as important as all of his covenantal promises are to him, there is something more important. God's own righteousness. Israel began to believe that they could do whatever they wanted with God's commandments and obedience. Does it sound like you? Does it sound like our culture and our world? I can do I can do whatever I want. Well, I, I can it's all how you read it. You know? It's all how you interpret it. And well, that doesn't really apply. That was kind of an old testament thing. Or, you know, Jesus, you know, well, what did he do with the woman at the well? He, he was really loving, so that kind of gives me permission. That gives me permission to do whatever I want to, and I don't really have to be fully obedient. Does it sound like us at all? Does it sound like you? I know it sounds like me. And that's what Israel was were doing. They were dismissive of God's rule as king and lord of their life. And what did it ultimately do? It led to Lamentation chapter 2. It led to this moment. And the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem were meant to send a message, a clear message to them. The lament, lament of Lamentations are meant to be a warning for them and a warning for us. Do not forget that God is absolutely holy. Don't forget that, friends. God is holy. He's just. He, he is, yes, he's absolutely, he is long-suffering, he is merciful, but the city of Jerusalem was a stark reminder that God will deal harshly even when his own people, with his own people, if they are rebellious to him. Sin is that bad, and God is that holy. Hold those two in constant tension. Sin is that bad. And God is that holy. Do you think of him that way? And if not, you should. Now you need to see in Jerusalem in 586, it's not, only, not the only place where God makes his holiness in contrast to man's sinfulness very clear. It's not the only place we see it in Scripture. There's another moment in history where the wrath of God becomes absolutely, almost shockingly clear. What is the greatest display of God's wrath in the New Testament? Where is the place where you should point and say, let me show you how bad sin is? Anybody? Where? The cross. 
the crucifixion of Christ, uh, in the cross of Christ, we see the wrath of God poured out. Poured out. Just listen to these two texts. While they're short, they are loaded with this important truth. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Or 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the curse. He became sin. And the Father crucified his own son in order that the sins of those who trust in Christ might be covered. Might be atoned for. And Jesus died a ghastly death because of the significance of the holiness of God. The ability to be forgiven by a holy God is directly connected and dependent upon the sufficient sacrifice. And God is able to be both the just and the justifier. The just and the justifier because of the cross. So it's at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that we see the mercy of God and we see the holiness of God. Both in one amazing moment. We get a clear picture of the beauty of God's grace, but we should also feel the weight of His righteousness. How holy is He? How righteous is He? How precious is His glory? So much so that He would bring judgment upon his people, but he would also pour out wrath upon his own son to redeem those people. So when you read Lamentations 2, you need to ask yourself some questions. How big is God's holiness and righteousness to me? How big is it? Is it something that you can just pass by quickly and just give a good evangelical nod to? How do, ask yourself, how do I take sin? Do I take my sin seriously? The big and the little, the hidden and the public. Do you take those sins seriously? Have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And is your heart tuned to the very glory of God? You see, this is one one very practical way that lamentations and the category of lament helps us. They tune our hearts to be aware of the glory of God. They, they, They help us lament the sin that is inside us and around us and reminds us of the importance the important place of God's glory in the universe. Judgment awakens our soul. It jolts you, right? Wow! Lamentations too, that's uncomfortable. It's meant to jolt your heart. And lament helps us, keep, helps us by keeping the weight of God's glory in front of us and in our hearts. The second movement of this chapter extends from verses 11 to 19. And the shift focus from 
moves from the details of the destruction of the city to the deep grief that the people of God are facing. Jerusalem has experienced the, the full wrath of God. And it's not only devastating the physical city and the physical temple, it has also created great grief in the heart of God's people. The scene is sad, it's, it's emotional, it's tragic. Lamentations was written to provide more than just a historical record of what happened in Israel's failure. It was, it was composed to get into the very heart of the people so that they would remember and that they would be warned, don't do this, don't do this. Lamentations was meant to move the people of God. And verses 11 through 12 makes the lament personal and more emotional. My eyes spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground. As Jeremiah and the people witness destruction, they are deeply moved. It, it's physical movement. Did you hear it? The tears bile is moved out of the body, spit out. It even talks about even innocent children are caught up in this tragedy. The children are fainting in the streets. They cry out in hunger. They, they faint like a wounded man. They're dying in their mother's arms. There are few things that are as moving as the suffering of children. Back to the Aleppo thing. I have one picture blazed, it's just burned into my memory. It's of a small boy that was rescued. And he is covered with all the ash and the debris, and he's sitting in, in an ambulance chair. Do you know what picture I'm talking about? That, that, that's what's going on here. There's, there's a, the children are like this. So the judgment of, of Israel cannot just be studied, friends. We, we just can't go and just, okay, this happened. Here's the, here's the timeline of what happened. Okay, I got it really clear. It must be mourned. It must be felt. It must ache. Think of the difference between the museums of the, um, the museum of uh, the field museum and the Holocaust museum. The Field Museum, you go through and you kind of get educated. You go, oh, okay, well, that's, that's really neat. Okay, this is how Native Americans live. This is how the animals live. This is how this happens. And you got a real kind of intellectual kind of view of how things are happening. And you, you pay your big price and you, you walk back out. You pay too much in the food court and you walk back out. It's like, okay, now I get that. But the Holocaust Museum is totally different, isn't it? it it's the place where uh, people are reminded and warned. And there are clear messages and themes throughout the museum, such as from memory to action. Think about what you saw. Only guard yourself and your soul carefully, lest you forget the things your eyes saw. The facts and the emotions are meant to move and warn us. And the warning is strong here because the destruction is widespread. There's not one person that wasn't affected. 
It seems like all hope is lost. 2 verse 14 says, For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The picture is bleak, and we, we learn about the spiritual component in verse 14. The spiritual leaders did not give the people the, the truth of the word of God. They avoided dealing with the sins of, of the people. They, they gave the people misleading oracles or messages. So underneath the destruction of the city was a very significant spiritual problem. Judgment comes because of sin. And that is why it's absolutely critical. Whoever you are listening to, whoever you are reading, whoever you are consuming in your podcast, that they are telling you about the truth of Scripture, the truth about God. Well, on top of this, the, the enemies of, of Judah were rejoicing. They were celebrating at what was going on. Can you imagine? It is additional salt in the wound. Not only is this difficult and it's painful and where they're mourning and everything is devastated, now my very enemies are doing the happy dance. And to make this all even worse, all this happened at the command of who? God, the Lord. God had used a victorious enemy to be his instrument of judgment. And part of the grief is the fact that God is not even intervening in the moment. And at the end of the day, he's behind this terrible judgment. And this is what makes the pain so terrible. The heart of the nation is breaking. And, and as we think about the trajectory of this and how it connects to the story of the gospel, it is very clear that the judgment of God with which he was, which was poured out on the Son of God was not an accident. God didn't accidentally spill the bucket of wrath on his Son. It didn't happen that, oh, the Romans, they, oh, shoot, they're screwing up my whole plan. And the Romans came and crucified the Christ. No, that's not it at all. God was on a mission to provide atonement. God was on a mission. Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite and foreknowledge, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Killed by, was you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Christ? Ultimately, the Father. Jesus himself cried out to, not the Romans, to give me mercy. He cried out to God while on the cross. Not only did he ask that his persecutors be forgiven, but he poured out his heart and because of there was a personal abandonment that he experienced and he felt, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the greatest and most frightening sorrow that was possible in the entire universe. He experienced separation, total separation from God. And in this respect, do you realize that Jesus not only, he has not only saved you from your sins, he saved you from God. He saved you from God. He saved us from being on the wrong side of God's judgment. He saved us from the sorrow of judgment. And the prophet, of, prophet Isaiah said it this way, Surely he has borne 
our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So this final section turns from a poetic recollection of the devastation of Jerusalem to an appeal to God. The wrath of God and the subsequent sorrow, they, they now turn their focus off their pain and they start turning their focus to God. In their sinfulness, they, they had totally ignored God. They turned a blind eye and had a cold heart. And now, he had their attention. Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears stream down like a torrent night and day. Not just a trickle. Tears streaming down like a, a torrent. Give yourselves rest. Give yourselves no rest. Your eyes no respite. Arise! Cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Pour out your tears, your cries. Pour them out to the Lord. The people are now absolutely desperate. They long to hear have God hear from them. And the pressure of the moment and the judgment of their sin has awoken them to the destruction of their actions. They are feeling the pressure of being on the wrong side of God's glory. Therefore, they appeal to God directly. The people of God, His chosen people, have now been rejected, and it was rejection to the most severe degree. He gives them two examples of the horror of God's judgment. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? Should the priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? So from a cultural and a societal standpoint, it couldn't get any worse. The city was in ruin. The people are dead. The nation is destroyed. God has turned against his own people because of their sinfulness. There, there is a great sobering summary in verse 21. You summon as if the festival day, as if to a festival day, my tears on every side, tears on every side, and on the day of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. So chapter 2 completes this comprehensive A to Z treatment of God's wrath. And the last few verses show now how God has the attention of His people. He's tuned their heart. To his glory. They are appealing to him and crying to him in the midst of a very dark moment. It's similar to how the prophet Habakkuk put it In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, God, please remember mercy. So experiencing and witnessing or remembering God's judgment is meant to turn our hearts back to Him. The record of God's judgment on sin, whether it be in Jerusalem, 586 B.C., or the crucifixion of, of Christ, invites us all 
call out to him. Cry out to him. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this may be the message for you. The weight of the vision of God's judgment is calling out to you. And it's calling, put your faith in Christ. It may be the circumstances of your life are are such that you know that God is calling for your attention. Right, left, up, down. It is coming on every side and you're feeling the squeeze and the pain and the depression and the darkness of God's will and you're going, man, okay, I get it, God. And God is saying, all you have to do is call for mercy. Call for mercy. You may feel as if at every turn there's more pain. reality is that you're resisting. If you're broken over your sin, if you're weary of running your own life, if you are ready to trust Christ, why not do so today? But as I look also over this crowd, I know that many of you are followers of Christ. And there are some of you who know right now that you are under the disciplining hand of God. You're feeling it. It's not that God is punishing you for your sin. That's already been paid for at the cross. But it may be the pain, the struggle, or the hard circumstances in your life that have, are serving to awaken your need to take sin far more seriously or to treat God's glory with more respect my friends if that's your case why not call out today for mercy and grace finally we see in this text a very important warning that every believer should heed regardless of what is going on in your life right now Lamentations reminds us that God is absolutely holy. Absolutely holy. It shows us the dark side of God's glory. This chapter invites us to soberly have our hearts tuned again to God's glory and to heed the warnings that are found in Hebrews chapter 12. And with this, I'll close. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe For God is a, you know how it ends? A consuming fire. So as we continue on in worship, as we even come to the Lord's Supper, we should come with a bit of fear and trembling, don't you think? 
holy reverence for the one who gave it all for our sake. We need to come examining ourselves. Am I under the disciplining hand of God? Am I refusing to say no to sin? And actually, I'm enjoying that sin right now. Are there things that I need to be honest about and plead for mercy and grace right now? So as we come to the Lord's Supper, friends, examine yourself. Examine your heart. Do not be like Israel. Father God, we, this morning, we know in many ways that we are much like Israel. We have uh, a low view of the holiness of God and a low view of the seriousness of sin. We are selfish people. God, I pray that your holiness would sink in even in this moment. That our hearts would break. The torrents of tears come down our face. That our hearts would just ache. God, I pray that we would experience, even in discipline, your mercy. God, I pray that we we would be the type of people who have been and are being transformed into the very image of Christ. And that requires us putting to death sin in our lives and coming alive in Christ. So help us, Lord. Help us. This we pray in Jesus' name.